Hello everyone and welcome back to A Pint With Peter, an informative and somewhat comedy podcast where me and my mate Chris sit down with my dad as we try to bridge the intergenerational gap. Now, last week we left off chatting about the big smoke and this week we will be chatting about the rock band The Rolling Stones. I'm sure they don't need much of an introduction seeing as they are still performing after 50 years, I think it is. Question is though, how much will me and Chris know about the band? Let's find out as we get back to it! you um i've already asked your sister and if you talk to your sister if i pop the question what do you know about the rolling stones from her it's a big shrug of the shoulders it's you know what's this old bastard going on about i maybe know a couple of songs dad please go away so even though they're probably setting up the stage now you know you can pay couple of hundred quid I think tops you know to watch the stone and they're obviously meaningful to an awful lot of people what would be your some total of knowledge around the stones because I know you're both quite big music fans well as stated before I watched a documentary ah you've cheated a bit but before that I would say the iconic logo of the lips Uh and they did an episode of the simpsons uh, the two things that would be able to tell you. Of course, Mick Jagger's walk. walk. Once again, I know that from The Simpsons. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Now, where do you where do you think he took the walk from? Could you have to go back to podcast twenty two or whatever? I would say Elvis Presley. Well, Presley, I think was a big influence. Also, Little Richard. You know, people people like that's that. mentioned in the documentary. Yeah. We're saving that. Well, there's the logo, guys. This is all that remains for me of my Stones collection. Because if you go back to Podcast 4, probably, I would have been maybe 11. And uh, I'm not going to get into bullshit about the summers were much hotter and the winters were harsher. But if you go back to that podcast, I, I and my friend, we went out snow shifting, would you believe? And with my snow shifting money... I bought the Stones EP as a kid, you know, leaving primary school, still in short trousers. Little um, historical point, I entered high school, and I seem to recall, and I might have got this wrong, in the first couple of years of high school in that era, you still had to wear short pants. You, of course, would have worn trousers, wouldn't you? Would you have worn trousers? Yeah, trousers and shorts in the summer. Yeah, only primary school. Interesting. Yeah, it's, these, these little things fascinate me. But this, the reason I've got this, I've gone and lost the cover. This really is from a point of total fandom and relating to the Stones. Don't ask me why. Uh, this is probably where my interest in the Stones totally waned. Um, I, I didn't... This. This album is uh, the cover. I know you like cover art. It's got a fantastic cover. This is from an album called Some Girls, and you know how you can get pieces of card that slide across mm. each other. And what it was, it was pictures of the Stones with various ladies' hairstyles and <laughs> different wigs and so on. Do you know what I mean? But I, d- I don't have the cover. But there's the logo. I mean, the logo. Clearly, what happened with the Stones? They were being taxed, their, their, you know, their music, what they were doing. I think it was the Labour government. 
They're being taxed. I've heard the figure of 93% being bandied wow. around. Yeah. Huh. Super, super, super tax. And, and what they did, they decamped over to France and they bought um, like a chateau and they set up their own recording studio and they became, as you can see from this, Rolling Stones Records. Whereas if you get the early stuff that you can see behind you, that album at the bottom left is, is called Their Satanic Majesty's Request. That was um, their answer to Sergeant Pepper's. The one next to it is Let It Bleed. And when we were doing the Hyde Park thing, they played quite a few songs from that. And the top one, I think that is their very, very first album. So I, I would have saved up my Christmas money for that very first oh. album. Oh, Jesus, I wish I, had, I wish I had them now, because some of them are obviously very, very valuable. I mean, I tell you what, let's see. You can put a thumbs up and say, the, okay. the, these singles, I'm not going to read them all because there are, ooh, maybe 40, most of which were in the top 10. How about I Want to Be Your Man? Yeah. Wow, 1964. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your man. Do, 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 do. Yeah. yeah. Basically, a blues song ripped off. Uh, not fade away. No. Wow. It's all over now. I used to love her, but it's all no. over now. Wow. How about let's see if we can get get a hit from Satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. You must know Satisfaction. Yeah, satisfaction. yeah they finish. I think seem to recall they finished off with Satisfaction. It's about a fourteen minute version. Hey, hey, you, you get off of my cloud. No, I'm getting no, no response here. Don't think so. Uh, paint it black. I see you I'll paint it black, awesome maybe. Yeah. Let's spend the night together. Yeah. Let's spend the night together. Yeah, you know. So it's about 3 0 here, Russell. How about Jumping Jack Flash? Jumping Jack Flash, it's a gas, gas, gas. No, puzzled. No. It's like Jesus. a really rubbish round of Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Wow. <laughs> All right, you, you've got to get a response on this. You're talking now 1969. Honky Tonk Women. Do, 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 it's got that lovely cowbell. Oh, I love a cowbell. <laughs> Honky Tonk Women. Can you find it on your machine? Can I hear the first week? Maybe we can get sued. Honky Tonk Women. Street I Fighting can... Man. I've never really listened to this. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. And quite a few of these things have got kind of devil type references in them which i mean would you even know any of the albums i tell you i tell you one you might know because if you go to some shitty disco or you know these wedding things uh one that people like dancing to is start me up oh. start me up yeah you know that one yeah, yeah? is it start me up the one with the guitar riff at the start yeah uh, that's the one yeah yeah that's the one yeah. anyway Bit of a detour here, but I know you guys like your history. I mean, this is history. We hitched this time. We, we hitched from a place called Hilton Park, and we got a lift all the way to the suburbs of London. Huh, That's how easy it was then. And when, when you stood on a lay-by, or if you stood at the exit to a service station, there might have been sometimes maybe 20, 25 people hitching. Huh. It was a really common, common form. Of, of getting around. Um, I feel like I remember seeing the odd one 
as a kid, but no, you know. I think I think it. I think you still see it in parts of Europe. I bet mm. at the moment in Ukraine you'll <laughs> see it quite a lot because that's where a lot of it began during the war years, where people were given leave, yeah, furlough, mm. and that they'd hitch. And obviously, if you had a uniform on, which brings me on to this guy who gave us a lift. I'm only mentioning this because I know you like this kind of stuff. He, he was, um, you could tell he was a bit military, even though he was middle-aged. He chain-smoked the whole way, would, would buy in full strength. And he told us uh, he served with the Royal Engineers, it's called R-E-M-E, uh, Remy. He was one of the first units into Berlin in 1945 when the Russians had obviously quote-unquote liberated it and um, when the armoured divisions had gone in and they basically cleared the ground it not literally they, they obviously made it safer he went in with the engineers and uh, I remember the conversation he, he I remember he was telling us about the the werewolf threat which you can check out later it wasn't werewolves by the the way but you still had in 1945 and beyond small enclaves cabals of die-hard nazis who weren't going to give up and that they were threatening sabotage and so on and so forth he also spoke at some i don't know how involved he was uh, about the flourishing black market and he, and the currency was basically cigarettes and chocolate and if you're an american it was obviously chewing gum he told us briefly about women it was stockings stockings and he talked about the um casual nature of sex there's, there's a really good historian called anthony beaver B-E-E-V-O-I-R has written a fantastic book about this period. It's a horrible fact, but the the Russians in particular, you're talking about mass rape. They they really just went through Berlin and basically raped everything in sight. And he also talks quite eloquently about the total and utter devastation of the place. But the highlight, and I've tried to check this out in the last few days, I can't find any reference the highlight his co told him he assigned him to pick up i think it was heinrich himmler could have been goering he took himmler's bulletproof steel-plated mercedes and he drove it back from berlin to some army base in in england (laughs) isn't it funny what you remember and if you if you go on the internet, I, I've never I couldn't find any reference to that particular vehicle. I think particularly Himmler, they had a whole fleet of cars, and and uh, for a long time after the war, they couldn't be sold, and they were just kind of hidden away. And when it, when he got back from that, he was assigned to a big German city called Wolfsburg. And at the end of the Second World War, obviously the bombing campaign focused on destroying the infrastructure, you know, obviously the docks and the, the steelworks and the coal mines, etc. But he and his team, they took over what was the VW factory. Because the big thing about the Nazification of Germany, they, they built all the autobahns, which, which were quite... You know, Germany had autobahns way before we had motorways. And um, the Beetle, you know, the iconic Beetle, I can't remember what it is. It's, it's called People's Wagon. I think yeah. Volkswagen means car for the people. Yeah. And what they, what they did, I mean, obviously, 
during the conversation explained in greater detail. They, they basically rebuilt and retooled this factory using obviously German German help and uh, surprisingly because I think I think with the Russians they wouldn't have done it surprisingly I guess it would have been 1947 48 something like that they handed over the whole shebang back to the German people I've got a book about it over there not not about the German automobile industry but if you talk to anybody who was around in the 60s and 70s we had a, a massive car industry in this country, you know, mainly focused around obviously Dagenham in, in the south and in the Midlands where I come from, usually your dad had, had a job in one of these car factories, it would have been fantastic, but the cars were dreadful, the kind of things you bought and literally the door would fall off <laughs> or, or they'd be, you know, rusted beyond repair over a couple of years, but is, isn't it amazing, had we, had we have kept on that VW factory and owned it? Um, you didn't mind me talking about that because no, no, because no, because, because what what I find incredible is I got to hammer home this point. It's the way in which a stranger, a third party in a hitchhiking situation, will talk to you and reveal stuff in quite an intimate, you know, digressive, detailed way in which they probably wouldn't even do with their family. Mm. That that really fascinates me. I find it fascinating. And, and the, second, the second thing is that, you know, you can, I can remember all those images of, of him telling me about the car and you think about the guy driving the car back and so on. So after the personal shambles of the Blind Faith gig, Barney and I got a bit organised here. You know, last time we didn't have much to eat and ended up trying to sleep in, the, in one of the royal parks. Do you remember yeah. that? But this time, it was going to be no pricey jumbo hot dogs for us. So we got our ex-army haversacks. Because if you remember, kids like us back then, a lot of a lot of his stuff was bought from army and navy stores. And another little memory that I was sharing with your mum, we bought two bottles of Blue Nun wine. So if anybody listens to this who's about my age, Blue Nun... It's come back, actually. It's, uh, it's called Lie- Liebfrau Milk. And what, what's interesting is if you go back even to the 70s, the average household did not drink wine. And wines like this Blue Nun, they were the first commercial wine. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid growing up, the only people who drank wine were probably the middle classes. And I remember even in the small town I lived in, there were a couple of, what do we call, victuallers or whatever. They just sold fine wines, going back to Withnail and I. So, you know, you, you went to these places and you'd have all the bottles labelled up in their vintages and uh, they'd have a massive barrel on the floor selling uh, port or sherry. And as a, as a kid, you know, 15, 16, we, that my, our favourite tipple was mead. You know, the honey drink yeah. that uh, the, the monks make. <laughs> it was mead. And, and you, you could go along. It sounds like prehistory. You could go along, even with a milk bottle. And you'd, you'd say, can I have a pint of mead, mister? And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd get this milk bottle or whatever full of, full of wine. Very grand if we started that. Yeah, different, different world, isn't it? It's like... In, in lockdown. I was going to say, did, him, did the pubs do that in lockdown? Yeah, and in lockdown, you could go up and with 
get a bottle of beer or something. Is that right? Or like they do it basically have their own kind of plastic pint. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Wow. Yeah. Because um, this blue nun, the other, if you, I'm not, I'm obviously not a wine connoisseur, but if you think about it, wine or fine wine, you attach it to food. So you, you drink certain wines with certain food types, don't you? So this wine would go with fish, or this wine would go with cheese, blah, blah. But the, the USP of Blue Nun and its ilk, they were actually marketed as drunk with anything. <laughs> you with me? So you could buy this Blue Nun, shite, basically, and uh, you, you could suddenly transcend those kind of bourgeois expectations. I feel like I'm going to get a bottle for the next recording. Yeah, Blue Nun. You Blue Nun, you check it. I mean, the other one you had was um, something called Matthias Rosé. I mean, are you familiar with Matthias Rosé? Yeah. That actually came from Portugal. And it was in a bottle, this shape. I'm good at maths, but it was that shape. It was the Matthias Rosé wine that uh, Barney and I, going back to podcast three, when we went to this posh girl's house, we poured... Do you remember half yeah. a bottle of Machos Rosé into the goldfish tank <laughs> and followed it up with a squirt of fairy liquid, yeah. <laughs> so when I die and, and uh, I'm standing at the pearly gates, it'll go back to, you know, you killed that girl's goldfish <laughs> that day. You are you are a sinner. Um, but the, the, the other thing is, you know, your mum, when she was growing up, her parents were publicans, weren't they? So... Right into the 70s, the average pub wouldn't have had any wine. Huh. You, you would have had, obviously, your beer and your spirits. And the only wine you would have had would have been the fortified stuff, like martini. Have you ever heard of martini? Yeah. My grandma still drinks mm. martini. Does she really? Right. And stuff like baby sham. Have you heard of baby I sham? Baby. Was, was this another effect of the war? Because imagine so, so, soldiers would... Ah, uh, yeah, uh, I I think if you read a lot of the memoirs of the Second World War, obviously when on the First World War, I know, talking to my granddad, they they would if they found a cellar in France or Belgium or whatever, they would actually drink the contents. Obviously, ordinary people, ordinary working class people, probably did get a bit of a taste for for vino. Isn't um. Martini, doesn't they? Don't they still sponsor um, a Formula One team? That's quite possible. Yeah, Martini was yeah. was the other one. Yeah, Martini. It's still sponsor, I think. But but what you had the, the game change was supermarkets. Suddenly, wine could be sold in a supermarket, so people could take it home. Are you with me? The whole movement was to turn wine, uh, you know, alcohol, from being a bloating kind of depressant into something more sexy and. <laughs> And desirable. I mean, there's a wonderful play in the 1970s. You probably know it called Abigail's Party. If you don't know it, check it out. I think it's still funny now. But in Abigail's Party, it's basically people who are, what do you call it now? They're up themselves, you know. They, they, they kind of imagine themselves uh, you know, socially as a station way above what they actually are. And they're all into wine drinking and so on. But they basically don't know anything about it so you had cheap italian cheap french and but to our neanderthal palates they were all fine wines and I, and to me you know this kind of marketing thing this mass marketing thing to make alcohol palatable for me 
if you if you look at the history, it, it came to a head with Alco Pops. You know, when you reach the kind of final low point of highly coloured, sweet, textured, flavoured drink. I mean, do you guys, were you, were you part of the Alcopops? Yeah. yeah, that was our... I think there's even, even in Alcopops, there's like a hierarchy to them as well. Oh, yeah, there was. Like, so what do you mean? You, you had the kind the of fashions. So what would be a good one? Smirnoff Ice and WKD are probably the top tier. Yeah. Maybe they'd, would they be blue? Would they have Yeah. Become? Oh, okay. Smirnoff Ice was kind of white. Then what would be the middle rankers? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. What about the low, the low grades? We only drank the finer things. That's oh, right. Right. Okay. That's a lie. We drank some of the, the ones that you buy for a pound. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that brings me on to, if you look at a graph of wine drinking, you know, you've got the 60s. I mean, then wine was taking off and it came to a real crash in the 80s because of... Um, Sean gave me a bottle. He said, he wants some cheap wine, Pete? And I think he got it from his kind of contacts in the, you know, the garage world. Yeah. And do you, know, do, you know what it, do you know what it was? It was an antifreeze scandal. Oh. There were millions of bottles of this cheap plonk circulating around Europe that had a kind of 20% antifreeze content. <laughs> so... That kind of... Um, and it was Bacardi Breezes. Yeah. That's another one. But, but, but just to give... You see, I think, I think historically, uh, we've talked about dress. I mean, Barney and I, okay, maybe we, we were attempting to be a little bit bourgeois, I don't know. I remember we, we bought some salami. And I kid you not, it was donkey salami. Yeah, oh, it was six, 60% donkey, 40% pork. I, I kid you not, it was tasty. And we also bought between us one of those Adam cheeses, <laughs> you, know, you know, the red, yeah. like a red ball. So, you know, we felt we, we were really posh. Yeah, that is quite bougie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing we, we got, you, you had Hobus, you know, Hobus. We actually bought some pretty good brown bread because even then in London, you could buy stuff like that that you wouldn't really see in, in parts of the Midlands. And um, if, you're into, if you're into health issues and so on, and food, tastes in food, my liking for brown bread, it came from sitting next to my Uncle Walter. And Uncle Walter had health issues. I think he had a stomach ulcer. A lot of people had stomach ulcers back in those days. And he, he would go, this would be in the 60s when I was a little kid you actually had a health food shop people people don't believe me and he, he would eat this brown bread and shredded wheat huh. you know shredded wheat uh, because it, it was good for you and I checked out in, in the town I come from if there was a health food shop and indeed there was and there it was and do, you, do you know what street it was on St Mary's Back Passage <laughs> St Mary's Passage sorry so guys, herbs and botanicals are nothing, nothing new. Right, Nothing's gonna, new. I'm going to quiz you now on the stones. So, By the way, are you ready? Are you ready? So first of all, who were the stones and why were they so iconic? Right. Why so were? It sounds like the start of a question. In yeah, who lesson. were the stones yeah. and why were they so iconic? And why? They were iconic, is because as a kid. Go on then, you tell me why they were iconic. I was going to say they're a bit of the anti Beatles, weren't you, you could have a whole podcast on that because 
I've got, I've got a wonderful book. It was, I think it's by Craig Brown, I'm not sure. It's called One, Two, Three, Four. And it's about the history of the Beatles. And what, what to me is ironic, the Beatles were, first of all, Northern. Secondly, I think you could loosely describe them as working class. And thirdly, if, if you read the story of their early days learning the trade in Hamburg, they were really rough, rowdy, unkempt, anarchic. Yeah. Now, if you look at the Stones, I, I think certainly Mick Jagger, and certainly the guy I'd like to spend quite a bit of time on with you, Brian Jones, because I think he's a really interesting character. I would describe them as being upper middle class. I was going to ask you that, because yeah. in the documentary I watched, they had an early recording of, I think it was Mick. Yeah. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, he sounds a bit posh him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He actually went to the London School of Economics, would you believe? Yeah, I, I heard that. Was that. That was no such thing as Dick, wasn't it? I'm not too sure what it was. Well, economics. He's got a degree in economics. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think he ever probably got his degree, to I, be I quite. I think he did, actually. Wow. He probably um, went back. Um, and he, he, used, he used it, I think it was to do with what you mentioned about them going to France. Oh, yeah. They'll come back to me. Yeah. So. Because was that the same episode where they gave the fact that the Stones latest tour was sponsored by a pension scheme yes. <laughs> <laughs> is that right yeah. oh my just god just feed into what their audience is now yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's tragic and of course Mick Jagger is a sir isn't he really? he's a sir what, what you got to appreciate is I wasn't alone in being a little bit of a rebellious kid the Stones very rapidly became notorious it was stupid stuff, like um, they ended up in court for pissing up a wall in a public place. <laughs> then you had the notorious later interest, I'm not even going to go because it's a cliche, of the drug busts. I, I did hear they were kind of like the tabloids' favourite Oh, sh- yeah, well, if you, if you... Again, I want to avoid all these kind of stereotypes of the period, but if you go back to the classic scene of, of your dad and probably your mum your mum would be tutting you know you got dirty long-haired rude slobbish gits basically you know and you, you'd have articles like would you allow your daughter to go out with a rolling stone blah blah you had five members originally the, the two of the originals were Mick Jagger Keith Richards and the third member, if you look at the pictures behind you from those magazines, the third member was Brian Jones. And Brian Jones, I, I, I could do a whole podcast on him. I think he was really interesting. Was he the one they kicked out? Yeah. Well, yeah, not just that. He actually died in, in very suspicious circumstances. In a swimming pool. Yeah, that's right. Um, He's saying yeah, yeah, an hour yeah, of my life was yeah. not wasted. Yeah. I mean, the other two... I, I, I think are equally interesting in their own way. But I don't know about you guys, but the rhythm section in a band, you know, the drummer and the, and the bassist, they are obviously critical, but they seem to be literally, uh, you know, literally and figuratively in the background, don't they? They're always the ones that get changed the most. Yeah. Well, I used to be a big fan of the Smiths, and obviously with the Smiths you had Johnny Marr, an outstanding guitarist and of course Morrissey 
outstanding in his own way. But as you say, the other two become rather mm. superfluous, don't they? They always seem to be the first ones to die, too. Quite a few ones I know have popped the clogs. Oh. Yeah. But the, the Stones, um, they, the, their drummer was Charlie Watts, who died uh, very recently. I think he was 80-odd, amazingly. And the bass player was a guy called Bill Wyman, who uh, is really interesting in his own right. So when you, uh, when I as a little boy, I'm talking about being maybe 12 years old here, possibly younger, you saw them, it would have been black and white, by the way, their whole stage appearance, it was really quite confrontational. It was that kind of, fuck you vibe so he had Jagger what got people with Jagger was his uh, his lips yeah the lips were quite look yeah. at that look at that wanker you know he's a right pansy isn't he you'd have all this kind of sub homophobia going on you know just look at him with his long hair the big sissy but he was an amazing front person an amazing front person he, well he was basically being black wasn't he they basically pretending being black then you had Keith Richards, you know, who played guitar, obviously. And Brian Jones, I, I think, had he have had a different personality and had he have managed to stay with the Stones, I think they would have gone in a completely different direction. Then you had, obviously, Wyman and Watts in the, in the rhythm section. But they were all, particularly Charlie Watts, I think, he was a really accomplished musician. He was a little bit older than them. But the, the two originals were obviously Jagger and Richards, and they, they called themselves the Glimmer Twins. <laughs> the Glimmer Twins. And Bill Wyman, I read a couple of articles about him earlier. You know, while Jagger was strutting his stuff, and Keith Richards was looking mean and moody, it was a classic, mysterious kind of vibe. You'd have Charlie Watts kind of keeping the beat in the background. And Bill Wyman, he was one of the first players. He'd stand there chewing and he played his bass in an upright position, which was, which was quite interesting. He came to notoriety in the 1980s because he started dating this girl called Mandy. When we first started dating, she was 13, so on and so forth. And eventually he married her. She was 19 when they got married. Do you know how old he was? Can you guess? 88. No, no, no. Oh, By God, God, no. He was 50, 53. I was going to say 46. He, he was 53. I think I have heard this story. Yeah, tabloid fodder. What made it even worse, Bill Wyman also had a son. I mean, he was 53, so I guess his son could have been maybe 30, and, and I think his son started dating Mandy's mother. <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? That'd be an interesting Christmas yeah, meal. Yeah, But Bill Wyman, uh, he, he left the Stones probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I've got a great book upstairs. It's by Peter Doggett, and it's called Sex in the 60s. I was, I was looking at a, an interview with Bill Wyman, and the promiscuity of... Guys like them at that time was off the scale. You see, Bill Wyman, although he's, he's not good looking or anything, he's talking about this tour in Australia where they'd finish the gig, go to the hotel, there'd be obviously loads of screaming fans down below. And him and Brian Jones, 
it wasn't boasting, by the way. It was just a matter of fact. They'd point to, you know, her in the stripy shirt, you know, her with the polka dot dress, blah, blah. And they'd possibly, between them, have maybe ten girls each night. That That's what it was like then. I thought you saw like that now. I've heard stories in, like, Satan's, a club we'd go to. The rock bands would have their manager kind of go around. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Pick up girls. Really? Why do I sound surprised? <laughs> I mean, if there's any women listening, it's deplorable, isn't it, really? What interests me, if you take Brian Jones, if you look at those pictures of the albums behind you, which one of those do you think is the best looking? I know none of us here are particularly gay, but what, who do you think? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brian Jones, and where is he at the front? Look at the next picture. Where is he? Brian Jones at the front with that kind of pudding bowl haircut. Amazingly, you look at the age of these guys, they're more or less all the same age. I mean, Brian Jones was born in 1942. Wow. Amazing. War babies. You know, a couple of them must be war babies and, and they're out there. The other thing about Brian Jones, I never mentioned this before, he's also possibly one of the founder members of the 27 Club. I mean, middle class... Grammar school educated, very bright, musical parents, rebellious at school, highly promiscuous, even before he became famous with the Stones. And this at the time would have been a massive scandal. Do you know he had five illegitimate children wow. even before he, he found fame with the Stones? What I think was interesting about him, he was a, a multi-instrumentalist. You see, if you talk to somebody who is a musician and, and that they're able to, to function at a very high level. And I think the Stones would probably admit it themselves. Keith Richards isn't the best guitarist in the world. Bill Wyman wasn't the best bass guitarist in the world. But together they formed you know, a really cohesive unit. If you, if you listen to this interview with Bill Wyman, he will say he used to kind of shit himself if he, if he knew in the audience there was somebody from another band who could play better than him. <laughs> Jagger, basically, although I think well, he can play guitar, is basically a vocalist. So they're not outstanding musicians, but I think Brian Jones possibly was. But his massive failing, and this is really big with bands, he wasn't a songwriter, yeah? yeah. If, you, if you look at all the albums listed there and the singles, they're all, well, almost exclusively written by Jagger and Richards. And that is what made them the fantastic band they became because their first, I don't know, their first, certainly their first three albums were all basically blues covers. And then they found their feet and started writing their own material. But to me, I mean, I don't have an axe to grind here, but I think um, the Beatles obviously had a much, much shorter career. But I think in terms of deep creativity, and deep influence. I think the Beatles arguably were streets ahead of the Stones. So I think the Stones, even as late as 2013, would describe themselves as basically a Chicago blues band, you know, but they, they had the longevity. They had the longevity. And the thing about Jagger, some people say that had Jagger not been in a pop group, he probably would be running an international bank or something like that. Yeah. Very, very savvy guy. Very savvy. But for me, Brian Jones is the man. Because he he also had um, a kind of interesting personality. He was very, very difficult. He didn't get on with anybody. 
He fell out with everybody. He fell out with the manager. He fell out with... I've got the Keith Richards biography somewhere. And he talks about Brian Jones and he basically describes him as a pain in the arse. <laughs> you know, he's, he's the kind of guy, when you talk about the drowning incident, he basically pissed off not just all his friends and band members, but he'd even start an argument with the builders. You know, that kind of person. It sounds uh, like he's... A very high functioning. Individual. I think so. Yeah, I I think so. And eventually he got dismissed by them. And one of the theories around his drowning was basically he, um, you know, it was depression brought on by you know being kicked out of the band. But he was an outsider from the beginning. I mean, when the Stones first started, you had this weird situation of um, bands would play in cinemas, and and you'd have maybe four bands playing even Hendrix when he first came over would be you know be four or five other bands and and they do matinees amazingly you know you'd have an afternoon session and an evening session allegedly in in the early 60s Brian Jones traveled separately from the band he stayed at different hotels and he demanded extra pay for his efforts and he was also you know much more um into into the drugs and the alcohol and uh, he's one of these people and I think if you look at the trajectory of, of rock music, pop music, I think the toll of being on the road and suddenly having loads of money, loads of fame, I think it swings two ways and I think for him he just became alienated and tried to uh, you know massage the pain with alcohol. And, and drugs, and of course that would make him more argumentative and more hostile. Uh, I mean, even um, Richards describes him as a preening peacock, apparently. <laughs> and he reminds me a little bit of Barney, in a way, because he did have his good side. I don't know if you know people like this, but they push every friendship to the limit. It's almost as if what they have, they don't like having it, even though it's good, and they try to destroy it. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does. It's like a self-destructive thing. It's like I used to uh, be very friendly and very close to a guy who um, went over to Canada a long time ago. I was considering going over there. He met a, a wonderful woman, a wonderful woman. He actually had probably the best relationship of his life, but he couldn't take it he didn't want it it's almost as if i don't deserve this and they had a child and he buggered off and he came back and he lived in my flat for a year or so but you don't know anybody who's that extreme very much that extreme i know some very negative people that you just can't have a conversation with them sometimes yeah that's an interesting one because if you look at um yeah about keith richards thing he talks about jagger as having, like, multiple personalities. You know, there's it, it a sentence in there, something like, when you step into the room with him, it's almost like going into a crowd. Interestingly, this is Keith Richards talking, the guitarist who took over from Brian Jones was called Mick Taylor. And Mick Taylor was completely different. Mick Taylor, when she'd had a conversation with him, that was it. All was revealed, you know what I mean? It never went any any further. It's interesting, isn't it? Anyway, do you want to wind it up there? So we've talked a bit about the band. We've talked a little bit about their songs. So next podcast, 
let's actually get into Hyde Park and I'll set the scene, what it was like. Well, everyone, we are going to leave it there this week with a promise of finally getting into Hyde Park. Your guess is as good as mine if we actually will make it in during the next episode, though. We hope you all enjoyed this chat about the Rolling Stones. Surely at least some of our listeners are Stones fans, maybe to those who aren't fans. Peter's small renditions got you curious to check them out. Let us know how much of a Stones superfan you are by heading to our Twitter and using the handle at a pint with Peter. Or use our email, a pint with Peter at gmail.com and remember to review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on it just helps the podcast get noticed and then maybe we'll still be going after 50 years one more thing before i go last week i said it's been two years of pizza it's actually been free but you can't blame me as the pandemic year is just a hazy fog to me and didn't happen well everyone i'm heading into high park really hope you join us and on to the next one